Welcome to the Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn with Houston Public Media. And I'm Eric Skelly of Rocco, River Oaks Chamber Orchestra. And this time, Eric, we're talking about George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess, his folk opera, which debuted in Boston, I believe, in 1935 before heading to uh, Broadway. It did. However, what's interesting about Porgy is that he had originally intended it to be an opera, but he wasn't able to premiere it as an opera. He had to basically rework it as a Broadway show, cut it down substantially, and so his original intentions were not realized until long after his death, when uh, basically in 1976, Houston Grand Opera took it up. David Gockley, the then general director of, of HGO, really believed that Porgy and Bess was the great American opera, and he championed it, and uh, he then brought this large-scale operatic treatment of Porgy to light and premiered it. And that's what's been done ever since by, you know, subsequently the Metropolitan Opera and all opera companies across the world. Porgy and Bess is based on the novel Porgy by DuBose Haywood from uh, South Carolina. And Haywood actually worked with Gershwin on the libretto and so essentially you've got three people involved. You've got George Gershwin writing the music and then DuBose Haywood and Ira Gershwin writing uh, the lyrics and the libretto. And uh, it tells of life in the early 1930s in a black neighborhood of Charleston, South Carolina. Catfish known, Row. Known as Catfish Row. Yeah. And we have this cast of characters who live in this area. This is a group of working-class African-Americans. Yeah. Largely employed either on the docks, as stevedores, or as fishermen. Yeah, if they're employed at all. That, I mean, it has to be said. I mean, Porgy is, is a beggar. He is not employed. He's disabled. Uh, he relies on a, a cart to get around. Traditionally, it's a goat-drawn cart. Sometimes he powers it himself, you know, depending upon the production. But these folks are, are, you know, they're living hand to mouth. It's Depression era. Very much so. As the opera opens, Clara, this young mother, is singing a lullaby to her baby. And it's perhaps the most famous aria or song from the opera, Summertime. Yeah, one of the most famous arias slash songs, period. I mean, that really has has uh, taken hold in the popular imagination. It's, it's a great song. This whole score is, is amazing because it's so jazz-infused. Every part of it, every single part of it, lots of jazz chords, lots of chromatic you know, work, not like Wagner's you know, chromaticism, but very much in, in a jazz vein. It's a jazz opera is what it is. And it's also written in that southern black dialect. Yes, which, of course, was one of the reasons that the opera was took so long to make an impact, because many people, black and white, saw it as being essentially racist, that these were racist stereotypes. Yeah, fortunately, that viewpoint has, has not held. It's not uh, regarded that way at all. Gershwin referred to Porgy and Bess as a folk opera. And he was very conscious of incorporating folk songs or folk elements, musical folk elements, yeah, folk musical elements into the music. 
And so many of those set pieces like Summertime fall into some sort of folk category, whether it be uh, a Jubilee song or a gospel song or, you know, whatever. And even though these are not traditional folk songs, that folk tradition was the impetus that guided Gershwin as he wrote the music. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think of a piece like Leaving for the Promised Land. It feels like he's he's taken a gospel number and lifted it and, and planted it into his opera, but it's completely original to Gershwin. And yet it just has that authentic feel to it. And at the same time, boy, it is just full of, of all those, well, what am I trying to say? It's It's very jazz flavored. I've been fortunate enough to to get to sing it in a chorus. And those jazz chords, it's difficult to sing. And it moves. It's really fast. This is deceptively difficult music, I I guess is what I'm trying to say. It doesn't sound like it, but it is. (laughs) It really is. And another element that reinforces this folk opera appellation is the fact that the libretto, reflecting the the novel and, and then the play, that was based on the novel is in a sort of southern black dialect. Mm-hmm. So you have very much that sense that this is close to the people. <laughs> yeah. So Clara sings Summertime to her baby as some of the men are getting ready for a game of craps. And we meet Robbins and Clara's husband, Jake. Right. Robbins is married to Serena. And she does not want him to play. And he says, it's a Saturday night and a man can do what he wants on a Saturday (laughs) night. (laughs) Which leads to Jake, who has his own uh, answer to summertime, which is a woman is a sometime thing, which is a, yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to go there. (laughs) I'm just going to leave that one alone. (laughs) And then... Little by little, the other characters in the opera come into Catfish Row. They are all going to get this game of craps going. And then Porgy enters. And as you said, Eric, he is disabled and he is he's basically a beggar. Yeah. And when he enters, you can hear his... He's got a theme in the orchestra. You'll recognize it immediately. And you'll hear it throughout the opera to reference him. And it's 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 a very sympathetic theme and... He, in fact, is organizing the game of craps. And then... Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then we meet meet our villain. (laughs) Crown. Yeah. And who is Crown? Crown is a stevedore, and he's a very dangerous guy. He's a really dangerous guy, prone to violence. On his arm is none other than Bess, who is... They're an item. Yes. Of sorts. Of sorts. And uh, he's he's there to he's there to party basically. He he's he's looking for some liquor and some drugs, and uh, he's he's there to have a good time. You mentioned drugs, and that is perhaps a, a surprising element of the opera and of this time, the early nineteen thirties. Well, this is realism, isn't it? Yes, this is realism. This is. Uh, uh, Gershwin's answer to to Verismo. It's it's an attempt to really portray the common man and portray him in a very realistic, gritty way. 
we meet this fantastically named character, Sporting Life, mm. who is the local drug dealer. He's a pusher. And he is trying to sell his, what is called, happy dust. Yeah. That would be cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And at the same time, Bess is, well, she's basically shunned. I mean, the women of the community, they see her as someone of loose morals. She's, she's an addict. They and she's hanging to... around with Crown, yeah. who is not somebody that uh, you want to hang around with. No. Or and respectable they... people don't no. want to hang around with him. No. And they want nothing to do with her. And Crown, he gets his dope, and he gets his whiskey, his cheap whiskey, and he is ready to play craps. Yeah. And as the craps game goes on, one by one, people drop out of the game until all that's left are Robins and Crown. And when Robins wins, that provokes a very violent reaction from Crown. Before we get there, though, one of the things that is really instructive is as the women are shunning Bess, mm -hmm. the one person that speaks up for her is Porgy. Mm. Yeah, good point. And you get a sense right from the very beginning that he, he has is, feelings for her. He has feelings for her, and he is a good guy. Yeah. But as the dice game comes to a close, and Robbins has uh, presumably taken Crown's money, Crown does not react well. No, no. A, a brawl breaks out. A very violent brawl that ends with Crown... Um, basically taking a cotton hook and killing Robbins. He stabs him. Yeah, he does. And then, of course, he runs off. Yeah. And he tells Bess she's on You're her on own. You're on your own. <laughs> nice guy. Real nice guy. But he does say that he'll be back for her when this has all died down. Yeah. Sport in Life then moves in and offers her some more cocaine, some more happy dust. Yeah. And he offers to take her with him to New York, but she turns him down. And Bess is left all alone. She's got nobody. No place to go. So she, she starts knocking on doors, and nobody's letting her in until she knocks on the right door. Which is Porgy's door. Porgy's door. That's the end of scene one. Yeah. Scene two is in Serena and Robin's house the following night. And they're all gathered for Robin's wake. Yeah. And the mourners standing around, sitting around, they sing a spiritual to Robin's gone, gone, gone. And they pass the plate to collect money to be able to bury him. To pay for his funeral. And Porgy comes in to pay respects, and he's with Bess. Yeah. And Bess tries to contribute to the burial fund, but Serena rejects her donation, presumably because of Bess's reputation. Tainted money. And then Bess explains that she's no longer with Crown, she's with Porgy. A white detective comes in, and he is investigating Robin's murder. And he tells Serena that she has to bury Robin's the next day, otherwise his body will be donated to medical science. Mm. So he tries to finger this older denizen of Catfish Row named Peter. He tries to finger him for the murder. And Peter's... He's, Peter's the honey man. He sells honey. Right. Peter says it's, it was Crown 
But the detective, you know, honestly doesn't really care as long as he's got somebody to finger for the murder and he has Peter arrested. And he wants Peter as a material witness so that they have some testimony against Crown. Right. And then Serena sings her her big lament. Probably the second most famous piece from this opera. My man's gone now. Yeah. The Undertaker comes in, but in the saucer that was passed around, they've only collected $15, and they need $25 for the burial. Yeah. But The Undertaker agrees to go ahead with the burial if Serena will promise to pay him the rest later. Right. And Bess, who's been sitting off to the side because she's still seen as an outsider, she begins to sing this gospel song. And as she sings, the chorus joins in. Yeah, this is the chorus I was talking about before, uh, leaving for the promised land. Well, the train is at the station. And it's that symbolic welcoming her into the community. She is no longer an outsider. Yeah. End of Act 1. End of Act 1. Act 2 opens on Catfish Row. It's a month later, a month after Robin's murder. And Jake and some of the other fishermen are preparing to go out in their boats to go fishing. And Clara asks Jake not to go because it's storm season and she fears for his safety. But he says, I've got to go because we need the money. By contrast, though, we get Porgy, who comes out, and another very famous number from this opera, he sings, I got plenty of nothing. And, you know, of course, the the song goes, I got plenty of nothing, but nothing's plenty for me. You know, he's got his woman, he's got his song, he's got a good life. What more does he need? Sport and Life comes around again selling his happy dust and is chased off by um, Mariah. Mariah, who threatens him. And she sings, I hate your strutting style. <laughs> She's a great character. She's sort of the truth teller of Catfish Rose. She'll she'll get up in your grill and <laughs> let you know what's what. <laughs> then we have this fraudulent lawyer, Frazier, who comes in to divorce Bess from Crown, and he's going to charge a dollar. But when he discovers that Bess and Crown aren't actually married, he, he raises his price to a dollar and a half. Yeah. It's a it's a pattern that you see here a lot. I mean, these these folks are not, you know, they're not the best educated and consequently they are prey to unscrupulous unscrupulous folks. Predatory people right. like this lawyer and like the uh, the detective, sad to say. Then Archdale, a white lawyer comes in and tells Porgy that Peter the Honeyman is soon to be released from the jail where he's being held as a material witness for the murder of Robbins. And as Archdale talks to Porgy, a buzzard flies over Catfish Row. A bad omen. A bad omen. And Porgy demands that it fly away because... He's happy. He's he's finally happy. He wants to stay happy. Buzzard keep on flying over. Yeah. So they're all preparing uh, in Catfish Row. They're going to go on a church picnic, and it's on this island called Kitawa Island. And while they're doing that, Sport and Life shows up again, and he wants to take Bess with him to New York. And she says no, because she's finally found, you know, love with a good guy. I mean, a really genuinely good guy who really loves her. Imagine that. Porgy, of course. And he, again, 
Sport in Life again tries to uh, give her drugs, and she tells him that she's given it up. She's off the drugs now. Porgy comes in and chases him off because he doesn't want this guy leading Bess down that path that she's been on too much of her life up to that point. Porgy scares Sport in Life away, and he tells Bess that she has a man now, that those years of, of different men have gone and that she can rely on him. Cue the duet. Cue the duet. <laughs> Bess, you is my woman now. Very, very famous duet. Again, this is just, I mean, listen to this piece. I mean, it's its so operatic. It is, I mean, I can't imagine what this sounded like as a Broadway musical, do you know? I mean, it, it so calls out for big operatic voices, not just operatic voices, but, you know, substantial you know, hefty ones. Here's to your really make uh, that sense to to sell that. Here's your love duet. Yep, absolutely. As the folks are leaving to go to Kitawa Island for the picnic, Mariah invites Bess to join them. But she doesn't want to go because Porgy can't go because he can't get in the boat. He can't get in the boat because of his disability. But Mariah insists, so Bess leaves Porgy behind, and they go off to the picnic. And as Porgy watches the boat pushing away from the dock, he reprises, I got plenty of nothing. End of scene one. Yes. The next scene is that evening on Kitawa Island. The folks are all having a good time at the picnic. And sport and life (laughs) (laughs) is regaling the multitudes with his cynical views on the Bible. Yeah, it ain't necessarily so. Again, I mean, this score is just a veritable hit parade. Serena chastises them for their lack of faith. Shame on all you sinners. As folks are getting ready to leave, Bess... She's held back. She's held back. She's lagged behind the others as they head back toward the boat. And suddenly crown emerges from the bushes oh you knew that was going to happen didn't you yep yep so here he is he and reminds her that porgy is just temporary and she tells him that she is reformed that she has taken uh, hold of herself taken control of her life and has been living decently and he just poo-poos that completely yeah, this is a very i would say erotically charged duet Begins with uh, with her line, oh, what you want with Bess. And he's really pouring it on. He's got the animal magnetism and that sort of, you know, bad boy <laughs> charm that some people can't get enough of. This is really the sort of the antithesis to Bess, you is my woman now. Yes, it is. That's You're exactly right. Despite the fact that she does not want to go with Crown, he grabs her and then he forces himself on, he kisses her. And as she begins to to give way, he drags her into the woods. And we can only imagine what happens in the woods. End of scene two. (laughs) End of scene two. (laughs) Cut quick. (laughs) Scene three is a week later. Back on Catfish Row. Jake leaves to go fishing with his crew. And they make the observation that it looks as though a storm is coming in. And, of course, you know, for fishermen, 
that's uh, that's a bad sign. Peter uh, has returned from prison, and Bess is in Porgy's room, and she has a fever, which she has had ever since she got back from Kitawa Island from the church picnic. Yeah. Serena prays that Bess get well uh, in a number called Oh, Dr. Jesus. And she, she tells Porgy Bess, Bess will be okay. She's going to be okay. She'll be, she'll be okay by 5 o'clock. Yeah. So some of the vendors pass through at this point. The strawberry woman and Peter the honey man and a crab man all come through. And as Serena promised, uh, at 5 o'clock, Bess is okay. She's recovered. And Porgy comes in and he, he tells her that he knows what happened on Kittywa Island with Crown. And she she admits that Crown is not gone and, and he will be back. Porgy tells her that she's free to go if she wants to. And she replies, you know, I want to stay, but I'm afraid of Crown and the hold that he has on me. Yeah. And Porgy asks her what would happen if there were no crown, and how does best reply? I loves you, Porgy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a it's a wonderful a wonderful number, and you know you really get the sense that she does. She really does genuinely love Porgy. Unfortunately, drugs and this this brutal guy that she's been involved with have you know a hold on her that she just doesn't have the willpower to shake. What about this fever that she has that Serena says will pass by five o'clock and at five o'clock it has passed? Cocaine. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Withdrawal. Right. Clara is watching the ocean, watching the sea, because she's afraid for Jake and the other fishermen. And although Mariah tries to allay her fears, suddenly the hurricane bell begins to ring, which is not a good sign at all. Not at all. End of scene three. Scene four is the dawn of the next day in Serena's room, and all the residents of Catfish Row are there to shelter from the hurricane, and as the hurricane is raging around them, they're drowning out the sound of the storm with their, uh, their prayers and their hymns, and they we have a reprise of Oh, Dr. Jesus. Right. As well as a reprise of Summertime, uh, as Clara, you know, is really trying to not, not just calm her baby, but calm herself. She's so desperately worried for Jake. And there is a sort of level of, of uh, sort of religious superstition as well, because uh, some of the residents think that this storm is a signal of judgment day. Yeah, that you know the world's coming to an end, and suddenly there's a knock at the door, and <laughs> they think that this is death. Close, <laughs> <laughs> it's Crown, <laughs> and he enters. He's swum all the way from Kitawa Island looking for Bess, and he's sort of blasphemous because he sort of poo-poo's the religious sentiments that the others are feeling. And he says, I have no fear of God because we're big buds now. Mm. Because after that long struggle, getting from Kitua to here, God and I are friends. Yeah. 
And there's sort of a little, little competition going on while the chorus, the catfish row denizens try to drown him out by praying a little louder. And he's, he's counteracting with um, you know, sort of a vulgar little song of his own. A redheaded woman. Uh-huh. And then Clara sees Jake's boat out of the window floating past upside down. And she rushes out to try and save him. She gives she gives her baby to Bess. To look after while she's gone. And Bess tries to get one of the men to go with her. And uh, Crown takes that opportunity to mock Porgy because Porgy can't. He's disabled. He can't go out and help her. But Crown does go to help Clara. And as he leaves, he calls out to God, All right, big friend. We're on for another bout. And the storm continues to rise. End of Act Two. End of Act Two. Act Three opens the next night. Again, Catfish Row. The hurricane has been devastating. Right. Clara and Jake and, and others more. have been killed They've in the hurricane. Died. Yeah. And they sing, Clara, Clara, don't you be downhearted. Well, and they also have presumed Crown to be dead, but Sport and Life just laughs it off and says, we don't know that Crown is dead. <laughs> you know, haven't seen a body. <laughs> he may not be dead. And meanwhile, Bess has Clara's baby. She and still has Clara's baby has from Clara's the night baby. before. Well, by default, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, and so now Bess sings Summertime as a lullaby to calm the baby down. As darkness falls, Crown comes back and enters Porgy's place to get Bess, but he's confronted by Porgy. And that's not going to end well for Crown. (laughs) In fact, they have a fight, and Porgy wins. Porgy kills Crown. Crown is dead. And then he sings to Bess, you've got a man now, you've got Porgy. Scene two, the next afternoon on Catfish Row. The detective enters and uh, is talking with Serena and her friends about the murders of of Crown now and of Robbins. And they deny any knowledge of Crown's murder. So then he turns to Porgy and starts questioning Porgy. And Porgy is quite nervous because they've been protecting him, but they haven't given him up. Well, it's the same situation as in Act One with Peter. Right. Who said that he knew something about the murder of Robbins, and he was arrested and incarcerated as a material witness. Yeah. And now the detective is turning to Porgy, who admits to knowing Crown. Right. So they tell him that he needs to come and identify Crown's body. Which he does not want to do. No, especially after Sport and Life tells him that (laughs) dead bodies bleed in the presence of the person who murdered them. And that if that happens, the detectives will use that to hang Porgy. Right. He refuses to identify the body and is dragged away and put in jail for refusing, for contempt of court, in essence. Right. Bess is distraught and sport and life sees his opportunity. He tells her that Porgy will be locked up for a long time and that he is the only one that's now there for her. And he offers her some more Happy dust. She refuses, but just like Crown, 
He forces it on her. He forces her to take it. And cue the next hit number. <laughs> He's back to to telling her he wants her to come to New York with him. There's a boat that's leaving soon for New York. And now with a nose full of cocaine, her resistance is pretty much nil. But she gains some strength. And she rushes inside. She slams the door in Sport and Life's face. And he goes away, but not before he leaves a packet of happy dust on her doorstep. And that's the end of scene two. Scene three, Catfish Row again, a week later. It's a beautiful morning, and Porgy is released from jail, where he had been for contempt of court for refusing to identify Crown's body. Porgy comes back to Catfish Row, with the added bonus <laughs> of having had a very profitable time in jail. Prison. Playing craps. And winning. And winning <laughs> with his cellmates. And he has gifts for everybody. Including a beautiful bright red dress that he's brought for Bess. And he's starting to get worried because every time he mentions Bess, everybody looks really odd. And... He sees that Clara's baby is not with Bess, but with Serena, and he figures that something is not right here. And he asks, where is Bess? And they tell him that Bess has, in fact, run off to New York with Sport and Life. And we have this lament, Porgy's lament for Bess. Oh, Bess. Oh, where's my Bess? But then... He just pulls within himself some inner strength. And he, call, he calls for his cart and he says, I'm going to go find her. I'm going to go to New York. And he says, he sings, oh, Lord, I'm on my way. And the whole chorus joins in with him. And it's, you know, the last of the, the big, great numbers in this opera. And it's the perfect way to end it because it's, it's on a high note. He's positive. He's going to go. He's going to win her back. And... End of opera. This is a great story. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's got opera written all over it. Yeah. And that fusion of, of the Western tradition of opera to this African-American folk tale, folkish story, is it, it's a perfect blend. It is, and it, at its heart, it's got two characters that you just can't help but love and root for. No matter how many times I've seen this opera, I still keep hoping. No, just say no, Bess. Just right. you know, do it. Do it differently this time. This time, <laughs> stick with Porgy. You know, and it, and it sucks me in every time. It's amazing, and that's just because it's so well written, and these characters are so beautifully drawn, so realistically drawn, and so appealing. And the irony is that. It is such a, a dark story in many respects. Yeah. And yet, you could say that it's a comedy because it has, it has a happy ending. In the, in the it, sense that, yeah. that Porgy is not defeated by Bess having left for New York. He resolves comedy, to go get Comedy her. being defined as not tragedy. Not tragedy, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah you, could, you could certainly say that. It's... It is uplifting at the end. You have hope for him. Yeah. This is 
the first really you have the melding not just of the the western operatic tradition and this black folk culture you also have jazz thrown in there as well and you've got this strange sort of melting pot of what of, could be more artistic influences what could be more american than that exactly and as we've been saying all through this it's just a hit parade I mean, one great number after another. The score is just wonderful. And it is firmly entrenched in the uh, standard repertoire. You know, it's interesting that people accused Gershwin uh, of being a racist for having written this opera that pulls all these sort of negative black stereotypes. And yet... Gershwin didn't agree with that at all, and he even stipulated that the cast of the opera should always be black. Right. Black singers. And and they're not stereotypes. They really aren't. You know, a stereotype suggests that it's just uh, surface, you know, and, and none of these characters are two-dimensional at all. Even the supporting characters, they're very richly drawn. They're fully three-dimensional and uh, not stereotypes at all. George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. That's this week's Opera Cheat Sheet. I'm Sinjin Flynn. And I'm Eric Skelly. Thank you for listening.